Welcome to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD, the podcast that delves into the diverse and impactful roles scientists can play beyond the lab. With me, David Mendez. This week, I'm really, really pleased to have with me Jessica Schleider. Jessica is Associate Professor of Psychology at Northwestern University, where she directs the Lab for Scalable Mental Health. Jessica completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Harvard University, her doctoral internship in clinical and community psychology at Yale School of Medicine, and her BA in psychology at Swarthmore College. Her research on brief scalable interventions for youth depression and anxiety has been recognized via numerous awards, including a National Institutes of Health Director's Early Independence Award. The Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies President's New Research Award and Forbes 30 Under 30 in Healthcare. And today we are, uh, we just started February 2024, it's the 2nd of February, and on the 30th of January, her latest book, Little Treatments, Big Effects, was published. So it's a special uh, moment. She confessed that she now could rest after the <laughs> launch <laughs> was done. But uh, welcome to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD, Jessica. I'm super happy to have you here today to talk about mental health in graduate school. Super important topic. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, uh, Jessica, I, you know, very quickly shared your, your bio. Can you uh, tell the listeners, tell the viewers a little bit more about who is Jessica Schleider, how you went into the domain that you working today and uh, and maybe how you went into uh, focusing on this question of small, uh, easy to deliver uh, interventions for mental health, which is not something I have heard of before uh, actually cr crossing paths with your work. Absolutely. So I have, and I talk about this in my book, kind of two stories for how I got into this field. One is very personal and one is professional. And per the stigma issue that we were talking about, the personal one isn't one that I've been super open about until the past few years. But uh, the big picture story of how I got to this path is our mental health care system isn't working. <laughs> um, the vast majority of people who need mental health care never access any kind of specialty treatment. About 50% of adults and about 80% of young people never access treatment who need it. Uh, among those who are lucky enough to get something, there are a million and a half barriers as to why they can't do it for very long. And the most common number of sessions that people actually access if they get lucky enough to get treatment is one. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> and we've spent decades in my field, clinical psychology, building treatments that are designed to last months and months. And that just doesn't fit with how people can actually practically get services and get help. Another feature is supports aren't neat, um, necessarily embedded into the spaces where people are. <laughs> so they're in the clinics, which are have long wait lists, there aren't enough providers, and meanwhile, most people are seeking help on the internet or with friends or with family members. Uh, so there was a clear need, as I was learning about psychology as an undergrad, for different kinds of ways of getting support to people when they needed it and in formats that made sense for their lives and what they could actually access. So the professional story is like, there's this huge 
problem that's been historic in, in psychology. And it just seemed like, why is nobody paying attention to this? We got to redo how we think about treatments. And, and that's why I started focusing on single session interventions, which can bridge gaps in, in systems of care. The personal story is I experienced those uh, gaps in the mental health care ecosystem as a teenager. So when I was around 12 or 13, um, I was diagnosed with a pretty severe eating disorder and there were no providers available. <laughs> the ones that were available had wait lists of months, which was not going to work for the situation that I was in. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've had a history of navigating this totally overburdened, insufficient system and learning about it as an as, as a student, I was like, I, I got to do something about this. So that's what I'm working on these days. Oh, and uh, well, it's great that you, your path brought you to, have, you know, being director of a lab that actually works on that and that you now can experiment. And, uh, and I, I've heard, you know, I've listened through some of other talks and, and interviews that you made and it's inspiring work. And uh, the cool thing is that it can directly help and of course, you're studying it in a scientific way, and you're uh, you know doing randomized trials, etc. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a really cool full circle type thing uh, with you. I'm sure it's very fulfilling for you. I can't think about other things for long enough to do them as a career, so this is pretty much the option. <laughs> well. We're on Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD, and so we're not going to be talking about teenagers today, but. Uh, People who uh, are in, we both went through grad school. I went to grad school. By then, at the end of grad school, I uh, was lucky enough to uh, have the I don't know the the clarity to look for mental health services when things were getting difficult, um, uh, which was offered by you know for, here at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, I'm I don't know uh, in, in the states how the system works for people who are in grad school, but one thing that I'm certain and that I know and that is published is mental health in graduate school uh, is not, uh, how can I say, you know, it's not rosy. In the process of, <laughs> let's put it like that, uh, the, the process of the PhD, we know it is a challenge. It's a big challenge. You have this limited time to reach this goal of, uh, of publishing something, of innovating in, in a certain domain. Um, there's some, there can be some solitude to it. I, in my case, I was, I was coming from abroad. So there was that aspect and a lot of people who are in grad school somehow travel and often con you know, for two different continents, uh, or, and, or at least different towns, but even different countries to, to go through their grad school experience. So it leaves a lot of us in this kind of imbalance, fragility, Anyway, not super supported uh, uh, framework where we, I think, uh, are become more vulnerable to uh, to a, to a also, you know, falling falling in in some uh, fragility on, on the mental health aspect of things. Uh, and again, depending on where you come from, your culture, etc., there's there can be different stigma to even talking about. I might want to see a psychologist or I might want to go to the counseling services uh, of my university. So this is kind of why I, I when I saw uh, your work, I thought this is going to be an interesting issue to talk about with someone who deals day to day, you know, daily with this, uh, with this 
question of mental unrest. And I think unrest is a great way to put it because you might just be a little bit imbalanced and it, it's enough to be a burden on your day-to-day. And I, that's why what I, when I saw that mental unrest was one of the ways that, or one of the expressions, one of the terms that you used, that's why I thought it was an interesting point to start the conversation. So, of course, you are, uh, you have a lab that you, that you direct, so you're in close communication with the graduate student community. So I think I'm just going to maybe let you, uh, from what I just said, uh, start, you know, talking a little bit about how your work with teens may translate to to the graduate uh, researcher community. Absolutely. So I think there are lots of parallels uh, in the types of risks and structural difficulties uh, that folks are up against as a graduate, as an adult graduate student versus as a teenager. Those are totally different life stages, but they are periods of transition. Um, you're figuring out what you're going to do next, who you are, either as a human, as a teenager, or as a scientist for your career, kind of going through some personal development in either sense, um, just different kinds of personal development. Um, there's a lot of figuring out new ways of relating to people, new systems, right? A lot is uncertain about both the, your presence and the future. Uh, your status is relatively, unfortunately, low. Uh, when you're a teenager, you have no control over how your life goes. Adults control the, the vast majority of your life and, and directions. When you're a graduate student, there are a lot of folks who have structural power over the trajectory of your career and the opportunities that you get. And so it's a similar positionality, so to speak to be a teen and uh, developing in all these ways and to be a graduate student and developing professionally and personally during that time. Graduate students have uh, added risk factors of being super motivated um, and you know really wanting to achieve. It's just like putting all the highest achievers in one place and <laughs> expecting it to go well if you just uh, have them work uh, in, in isolation from each other for years at a time. Um, and a lot of pressure that they put on themselves. And, you know, I think given the transitions that are all co-occurring um, in graduate school and in adolescence, a, a lot of the same pressures are there and a lot of the same needs for a sense of autonomy, for a sense of confidence and a sense of feeling related to other people and understood by other people. Those are the same um, at, at, at both kind of life stages. and. A sense of autonomy, a sense of confidence and relatedness, those are the things that in brief interventions, we really try to, to improve. Help people feel a little more like what they do matters for their future, a little more like they have skills that could matter for their next steps that are going to be helpful to them, and like people get them and people are there for them. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting, and I liked how you put it that it's there's a similarity to the to the process people are going through, and there it, there is an aspect of uh, trying to find out who you are when you're a teenager, and in another way, the same uh, kind of goal is there through grad school, but it's not so much finding out who you are, but becoming who you have set yourself up to be, which is an academic or a professional, a specialist, or 
you know, di different ways to put it. And you are not, you you aren't, uh, you don't, you're not there until you get there, until you defend your thesis and you're done. And it it can feel that you know throughout the process until you do your thesis defense that it you know it might not materialize and that's unsettling incredibly there's just uh it, it, it's a subtext of uncertainty for years <laughs> with no particular timeline for resolution and that's really stressful so that this is clearly a contributor to, to mental unrest the this this feeling of if I'm thinking, if I'm taking a step back and thinking about the overarching theme of my life of, as a young adult, now there's this uncertainty. So I can't really project myself to, into five years from now because there's this uh, this thing, this ordeal that I'm going to go through that I don't know the outcome of. That's one aspect. The other part of, in my anyway, and I'm, I'm going to tell you how I feel, but I, I'd like to, to have your opinion, but... The other aspect that might uh, lead to mental unrest during grad school has to do with the day-to-day. -day. The whole exercise is, first, finding a question that no one else has, has, has answered in a satisfactory way, let's say, finding a way you think it's going to be answered, and then setting yourself up to go answer it. But again, there, you cannot be cer certain at any step until you do <laughs> publish, etc., that for that you will get this answer and that it'll be well accepted by your PI, your, you know, by your supervisor, and then by, you know, there's other tiers. So there's this other day-to-day, -day, so this overarching one, which is more of an existential, let's say, uh, uncertainty, and then there's a day-to-day -day one. Yeah. So uh, uh, you don't deal with either, you know, with both of them the same way, I imagine, if if you are trying to manage this uncertainty which is bound to be there because because of the design of what a phd is these are the nuts and bolts of okay how do i do this massive task in front of me that seems enormous and nobody has there's no roadmap for me to follow um and at the same time also speaking to the day-to-day, -day, a lot of graduate students are living on stipends that are really difficult to live on. <laughs> and the practical sense of surviving and getting through life as a graduate student with all these pressures and all these incredibly challenging tasks ahead is tough. And in terms of strategies to deal with all of this, you're right. There's no there's no silver bullet, first of all, that's going to just magically fix everything because it's too big for that and it's too multifaceted for that. But I think one element of a brief intervention approach that can be grounding is the focus on the present moment and what you can do right now to reclaim some of your autonomy and control in a situation and take just one step, even if it's a small step towards a goal that matters to you and this isn't revolutionary this has been talked about a lot you know goal setting but in practice it's very hard to do when you're facing massive complicated years-long problems to identify the best next step for yourself and taking a moment to go through a self-guided activity or to seek out help so somebody can help you break it down what the next best step is for yourself 
that can be powerful even in the face of big existential questions, um, as well as in the face of more practical questions. And that's one of the pieces that we find is most effective about these brief interventions that we've been developing is helping people regain a sense that there is something they can do, even if it's not everything at once. So this is very interesting to me. And, and the cool thing about this is one of the things that graduate students tell me usually is I have n no time for anything else but my project. It's a common theme. Um, I'm super happy when I see grad students having, you know, coming with, I don't know, a hobby from, from undergrad that they keep during grad school. And often they have a better uh, journey through grad school if they have a community and, and something that a moment where they reset during the week and then they, they resume. But it's not a given for everyone. Uh, often, if you again, if you come from abroad and you're, you're, you need to do this degree in the shortest time possible, often people will just you know, focus and try to put all their time in there. But it feels to me that if we do, if you find a way to have these small, let's call, let's, in, let's call them interventions, like you say, it's not that complicated to include these practices or habits in in a, a very charged uh, agenda, you know, in a very charged calendar. What sort of exercises or, or what sort of habits can people uh, add? What sort of um, interventions can people do that are very small, but that, that can uh, help them reset, let's say, because it feels to me that this loss of control, this loss of agency, it kind of, um, you start feeling it at a certain point, and then it starts amplifying, and you need to reset. Absolutely. Do you have something practical that you can share? Yes, I have. I, I can share a little bit about the content of what we put into these brief interventions to help people recalibrate a little bit and just take a step forward where often, you know, being becoming paralyzed is so easy in graduate school, just with all the things. Um, and in the face of that overwhelm, it's helpful to try one of these kinds of approaches. So one of the programs that we've developed um, is called the Single Session Consultation. Uh, nice and non-stigmatizing, right? Anyone could use a consult <laughs> um, at various points in their life. But this approach is based on a model of therapy called solution-focused brief therapy. And within solution-focused brief therapy, there are a few core assumptions. One, everybody has strengths and skills, because if you didn't, how would you have gotten this far in life? So by, by the, the fact that you exist here today and you've gotten through everything you've gotten through, you've clearly developed some skills. The second assumption is that you can identify what's worked for you in the past and help yourself do more of it to get to a goal that matters for you. And everyone has that capability. So with those two things, you have to have skills because you are a human and you've gotten through life this much. And you inherently have the capability to use those skills to meet goals you have. Those starting points are often quite different from what people feel, <laughs> um, which means, which, which feels often like, I don't know how to do anything, everything's terrible, and nothing I do is going to help. Allowing yourself to, you know, suspend your disbelief and entertain these possibilities that maybe I do have skills and maybe I can do anything, that's on its own can be a reset. But once you go into the activity, the first step you want to do is figure out what's your top struggle right now. 
And when I say top struggle, I don't mean like graduate school. That is not a top struggle. That is like 14 million top struggles. <laughs> and what I mean is focus on a corner of one current struggle that you're facing. As in, what is, what is the next project or what is the next paper you have to write? What is the next paragraph you have to write? Um, what is the next sentence you have to write and you're struggling to get that? Like, I'm struggling with the opening sentence of my abstract. There, great, top struggle right there. Micro. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Micro, just as small as imaginable that you can still detect it. Um, turn that into a top hope. So from a top struggle to a top hope, what do you hope to accomplish after this exercise? Well, I hope to figure out what I want to say, how I want to open this paper, right? Um, so then we have this exercise called a uh, miracle day question, which is pretty common in solution-focused therapy. And we ask people to think about, imagine that a miracle occurs while you're sleeping. And the top problem you just had evaporates. It is gone. Amazing magic. But when you wake up, it happened when you were sleeping. So you actually have no idea that this miracle has occurred. So walk me through your morning. What would it be like to be in a world where your miracle day is here and your top problem is totally gone? You don't have writer's block anymore. You're not struggling. What is it like? What do you do differently? How do you feel differently? So trying to imagine what a world would be like in this parallel universe where you're not having your top struggle sometimes can help kind of shift you out of being stuck in that negative place of only being able to focus on how awful things are right now. What it also does is it helps you picture what you're working towards. Like, where do you want to go? What is the reward at the end of the tunnel? Not just how much am I struggling right now? For the rest of the single session consultation, you make an action plan towards getting one small but meaningful step towards that goal. So if you're like, on a scale from zero to 10, a miracle day is a 10, zero is as far as possible from that miracle day. Let's say you're at a five right now. The action plan is to get you to a six. And by thinking about when have I experienced times when it hasn't been so hard to write, what has that been like? What have I done in those situations? And using those past exceptions to the problem to form your action plan. You then end up with a really actionable set of steps that you know that you can do because you've done it before, because they're exceptions to the problem that you've experienced towards making progress. Um, and giving yourself the space to just sit down with that and end up with something actionable could be really, it's, it's like a reset for a lot of folks. And what seems very, very interesting to me and, 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 and that has a lot of potential for application by, by graduate students is that because it's it's a very micro thing it's very small the first time they're going to do it maybe they'll have they'll do it in a very structured way they'll follow what you just said but eventually they'll interiorize the whole process and then they'll just do it naturally and eventually it'll be part of their normal day-to-day -day thing when they hit a, a snag they'll go into that mode anyway i i just see that you know, there's potential there for really good results and uh, like compound interest on those, on, on those habits. Exactly. And what I think is nice about this intervention is that it allows you to do something even in the face of systemic problems that you yourself cannot solve. Because at least when I was a graduate student and many graduate students understandably are up against systemic problems that 
aren't solvable through individual small steps, right? Like the fact that there's a power structure and a hierarchy and stipends are low and work really is a lot and difficult. Those are all realities that you can't change on your own. But you can both acknowledge the existence of those realities and let yourself off the hook for solving those while also figuring out what corner of this can I do something in. And holding both of those truths at the same time is also kind of a, a micro intervention or a brief intervention that allows people to move forward in the face of these systemic forces. Uh, because a lot of people feel st stuck understandably by those and uh, validating that they can exist and also you can make changes is sometimes quite helpful. Yeah. And, and you know, the agency that you gain by, by learning that you can build this wall, you know, by, by laying very small bricks one by one, eventually it, it changes your, your emotional state when you see something new and unknown coming. You know that you, you have a tool now to scale that new mountain that before you were just in the fear and in the anxiety. Another piece about the single session consultation, this is um, a, a therapeutic program that I built to be deliverable by anybody. So whether or not you have a license to practice, you know, psychology or social work or counseling, this is a program that anybody can learn how to do on their own and with others. So in a lot of our research recently, we've trained peer specialists um, to deliver the single session consultation. So people with lived experience of mental health difficulties offering this support to others. So this is a tool that yes, can help graduate students help themselves, but also that grad students can use with their peers. That is, I think, a really exciting pathway into increasing access to support among grad students who often, for a variety of reasons, aren't in a position to seek out formal treatment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, not that this is a replacement, but if we're talking, it's this or nothing, <laughs> um, and this is an evidence-based intervention, then I think it's something that we should seriously consider. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, you know, I, of course, uh, there's like you were saying, there's different levels of need when you are in a position to go uh, uh, look for 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 mental health services. But um, the 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 whole uh, going into graduate school, maybe maybe moving places when you do uh, there, there's so many, like you were saying, there's so many variables that can be um, getting you in this position of feeling loss of control, uh, this uncertainty, this anxiety, um, and, and you know that doesn't require, uh, let's say, therapy per se, but you just need to get your agency back and, and get these tools to step-by-step step move through that maze. Uh, it, it makes total sense that uh, if someone has uh, some training with the tool that they can, or some practice with the tool that they can then deliver it to, to someone else, it's, uh, there's, uh, again, high potential there for, for, uh, for helping the, the, the people in the community. And I think, too, this kind of approach can be used to break down the steps involved in seeking formal treatment for people who actually need that, right? Who really do want something more high level with more consistency. So using the single session consultation to make an action plan to make that phone call or to book an intake appointment, that's another option here. Um, 
And seeking help is hard. Asking for help, admitting that you want and need help is really difficult. And that on its own can be paralyzing. Uh, so there's a lot of applications for this way of approaching problems that it can either, you know, connect you with other supports as like a stop, an, an interim step or serve as a support in itself. But um, in either case, I think it's a useful tool to have in your in your toolkit to be able to draw from. From all that we've been talking in the last few minutes, I have an image in my mind that I'm going to share with you, and 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 it connects to something else. But I'll, I'll try to to be to not be too long. It feels to me that in another way, what you've just been describing uh, is you get into this into this experience, which is graduate school, and somehow you start feeling small. You know, you you you're not a, a full size person. You start feeling small. You look around you, and you you look. Oh, there's a, a supervisor. There's postdocs. There's people who know more than you there's the stellar student etc and you start feeling small 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 and it feels like this these are little moments where you can see yourself at a one-to-one -one, you know at a, at, a, at a normal scale um and another aspect that i i know going through grad school uh, affects how small you can feel uh you know versus uh, the uh, versus the the experience versus the institution versus uh, uh, obstacles that you're facing in your research uh, is also how people outside view you you and I, I've had graduate student, students tell me oh uh, David I'd like to do this thing on the side you know start this newsletter on but I wonder how people uh, around me would look at me so there's this aspect of how you perceive yourself and your skills and what you bring from behind and how you actually come with some tools that you can use and sometimes you just lose view view of them and you think that you're you just lost in front of this huge wall but then there's this other aspect of the perception of others no yeah it's a great question so you're talking about fear of negative evaluation of course that's a huge part of developing as a professional in graduate school particularly because there are so many kind of degrees of freedom around how you can develop as a professional. So those choices feel very scary at times because you don't know the outcome because people legitimately often haven't done what you're thinking of doing before in the context that you're in. So yeah, of course people are gonna worry about that. Um, and there's also a lot of when you're a scientist, you talk at conferences, you present your work, it feels very personal, even if it's science, right? It still feels very much they're not going to like my work. <laughs> they're not going to like what I have to say or my way of thinking. Um, so it's difficult and very, very common to feel that way. So we have actually uh, in our lab been working on uh, as a brief online single session approach to addressing fear of negative evaluation in academic contexts. Um, this is a National Science Foundation funded project that we're doing with Katie Cooper at Arizona State University and my postdoc, Arko Gosh, who's uh, really been leading the effort uh, here. And we have developed a, a brief self-guided program that's designed to help students specifically in, in classroom settings feel more confident about speaking up and less fearful of what might happen if they get something wrong. 
um, or if they make a misstep or if they say something weird or awkward or <laughs> any number of things. Uh, and what seems to work best, and this is consistent with a huge body of literature about how to treat social anxiety too, is something called exposure, um, which is basically facing your fears. But <laughs> in a more nuanced way, you can engage in imaginal exposures. So allow yourself to imagine that you are doing something scary, that you're putting yourself out there in some way, that you're giving your first big talk at a conference, right? And you have no idea what people are going to think, and you don't know if somebody's going to judge you negatively or, or things like that. Think about what you would be experiencing, how you, what, what, your, what thoughts would go through your mind, what your body would feel like in that moment, and allow yourself to sit with it. And allow yourself to observe yourself experiencing the worry and the fear. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to experience those sensations and learn slowly that you can actually handle it. Like, <laughs> uh, you can get through this. Yes, it's going to be unpleasant. You, your your you know, heart might start racing. Your palms are going to be sweaty. You might have negative thoughts but then it will end. And if you go through the, uh, this exercise and allow yourself to think, what's the worst case scenario? Well, somebody will have a negative thought about me and I'll feel bad momentarily. And then it will end. Rehearsing that and allowing yourself to really sit with how it might feel in that moment and what you're worried about and exposing yourself to that and allowing yourself to practice seeing yourself getting through it that's the best way. <laughs> it's not easy. It's unpleasant. Um, but it's never going to be pleasant. You know, the actual situation isn't going to be pleasant. That doesn't mean you can't do it. And it doesn't mean it's not worth it. Another piece of this puzzle is thinking about your values. What do you care about? What, what do you think is important? Do you feel like it's important to be truthful and share your ideas as a scientist? Do you feel like what you're studying is underrepresented in your field and you really want to get it out there? Do you feel that uh, bravery is an important value that you care about and you want to model? Um, do you want younger graduate students or earlier on graduate students to, to, to know that it's okay to do things that are scary? Whatever value you hold, that can be something you consider, is that worth the discomfort? Right? So stop trying to push away the discomfort and embrace it and try to figure out is it worth it and can i handle it it, it sounds very powerful and now just a question a technical question would this be something again that you would do on your own you have you have this framework that you learn how to do and you do it on your own you do it with peers how how does this materialize exactly so the program that we've developed is actually designed for people to do it on their own like on their phone or on a computer or wherever they want to uh, exposure therapy, though, for folks who have anxiety disorders or really struggle and aren't going to be, I don't feel capable of, of sort of doing this kind of exposure on their own. Absolutely going to a therapist that's trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy, huge, uh, you know, can't, can't recommend it enough if you have access. Um, but there, there are multiple ways to, to engage in these kinds of behaviors and recognizing that you can do more than you think you can and allowing yourself to surprise yourself in what you can do. 
those those are certainly things that folks can do independently. Now, um, so there's this aspect of so fear of of, uh, of being uh, evaluated, and evaluation again is part and parcel of the whole process. <laughs> you, so, you have to be evaluated. That's what graduate school is. <laughs> that's it. Um, now, one other aspect that kind of relates to this, um, but is slightly different, is uh, different people have different uh, a different relationship. Maybe depending on where they come from culturally, uh, with uh, authority. It does bring a lot of anxiety to graduate students, uh, and um, uh, you know, I don't know. I come from Portugal, uh, so you know, the, those the Latin cultu cultures are uh, are in a certain way. Um, I, I feel that people in North America, even since you know kindergarten or since since very young age, they're kind of more used to presenting and doing I don't know uh, theater yeah. and uh, yeah and bringing, you know, putting their ideas forward. Of course, I'm maybe projecting some of what I lived through, but I think there's so many, there's so, there's so many uh, foreign students everywhere that, uh, that I think there's often a culture clash aspect when you are abroad for grad school. And this question of authority is, is a big piece that I've seen affect a lot of people. I don't know if this elicits an idea of something uh, for us to, to discuss uh, like at this kind of end part of the interview. Absolutely. So that's actually, I think, a good uh, opportunity to acknowledge that we can't put all of this on graduate students, right? Like PIs, mentors have to create a space where their students can come to them and let them know that they're not ready to present results yet. <laughs> like <laughs> that, That's not something that graduate students should feel responsible for creating that environment. You know, that's something that mentors should be creating. Um, that said, that's not always the case. Um, some PIs or advisors aren't explicit about how they expect communication to go with their students, which I think does a disservice to students who are less forthcoming, right? Because if you don't give people a roadmap, how are they going to know what's right and wrong uh, or what you would prefer? And um, it, it just creates unnecessary worry, I think, uh, uh, among, across the board. So the first actual recommendation here is for mentors and, and, and PIs to be explicit on how they expect communication to happen, what their policy is around, you know, vacations. Like, well, yeah, how does that work in your lab or at the university? Um, do you have different expectations of the universities, you know, academic guides or manuals has? Some people do, and they just don't share that. That's on the, the mentor and the PI. What graduate students can do, even in circumstances where the mentor or PI hasn't done what I think is their job and set that precedent, um, you know, there are steps that are possible to take. I think one step if these are concerns that you're not yet sure or comfortable you know going to your pi about go to another grad student in your lab that may be a first step it's it's not necessarily going to do the whole thing and, and fix the problem for you but getting someone else's perspective on what's worked for them how they've navigated this with the with the pi or mentor or advisor um, that can at least break some walls down around considering what to do next 
and probably more importantly, help people feel less alone with these worries. Because it can be extremely isolating not to know the scripts mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for how you're supposed to act or what you're supposed to do in, in these kinds of very particular professional circumstances. Um, so finding solidarity with someone else as at least a first step, it, it, that can often lead to uh, outcomes that are at least a little bit better uh, than what you would have gotten if you had just kept it to yourself. It's true. And this makes me think of uh, of something that's parallel, that's really a, a, just a follow-up of what you're saying. It's often there are communities of, let's say, uh, let's say like my example, students who come from Europe, there's going to be a group of students from Europe. But if you if you are part of these communities, and and uh, that are outside of your lab, outside of your day-to-day research, but where you can you know commiserate, but also exchange good practices, things that have worked, etc. It's going to be a plus for you, uh, absolutely, and in a, in a very safe manner. Thanks for uh, uh, for taking the the weight off the graduate's shoulders a little bit. There, <laughs> <laughs> it, it it is true. Depending on the labs, depending on the size of the labs, it's always. You know, it's not easy to to place guilt here or there, but uh, but it's a shared load. Um, and uh, I just it's just that my my heart always kind of tightens when when I hear, I hear a story like this because I've it kind of resonates with me uh, personally, but also I feel that it's a necessary mental strain, and uh, and that uh, it's totally unhelpful for the person for their project and for the lab where they are etc so um but yeah communicating and and trying to get knowledge from other people who went through it already for sure is a is a way to go jessica we're really getting to the to the end of the interview um if people want to know a little bit more about what you shared specifically, if they go, uh, if they get the book, will they find more detail in it? Yeah. Yeah. So the the single session consultation, the the exercise that I talk through, there's a self guided version in the book. Um, so <laughs> and it talks a lot about the evidence behind it and different ways to use it. So yes, that and a whole bunch of other stuff too. Excellent. Because and the audience, because they're graduate students mostly. They like evidence-based <laughs> information. <That's right>. <laughs> Great, <laughs> yeah, excellent. Uh, so, uh, because we're uh, we're talking about it, if people want to get the book, can they go to Amazon and find it? Yep, pretty much anywhere you can get books. The book is there. Excellent. I, I've seen that here in Canada. Uh, it's already available at, at Indigo, which is one of the uh, online uh, online uh, book booksellers. Now, if people want to ask you questions you know do they want to know more or they want to thank you for something you said during the interview what's the best way to reach out to you um i guess it's not called twitter anymore but twitter slash x linkedin i'm on social media platforms or email jessica.schleider at northwestern.edu um feel free to reach out just to kind of sum up what i'm kind of taking home from this first i wish i had you know heard something like this few years ago, I'm not going to say how many, but when I was going through my PhD. <laughs> but uh, so I, I'm sure this is going to be helping a lot of people out there. What I like about it is the simplicity of it. Often, you, you we, we mentioned it a couple of times, there's stigma around even talking, again, it's, this is cultural often, but around talking or even talking about mental health, about potentially getting help. 
And it feels like what you are doing is putting tools out there for people to help themselves, maybe even help others eventually in, in all, you know, in all safety because of the way the, these solutions, these, these interventions are designed. I really, really love that. It removes a lot of the friction to go get the help. And also for graduate students, I know time is one of their big, their, their, their big, uh, pain points in terms of their uh, <laughs> of what they uh, of the resources they find they have very little of and that's very precious for different different reasons be it the the time constraints of doing the the research but also uh, you, t you mentioned about the funding or lack of it etc uh, needing to have a job on the side uh, anyway so time is of the essence for them and it feels like these are very micro uh, uh, interventions that you can do, you can learn to do in to do them yourself, and then you can kind of it can be part of your you know can be in your quiver of tools that you have every day that you can use for you, but also for your peers. And I, I really, really, really love that, and uh, it makes me really happy that uh, that we were able to meet today and have this conversation. So thank you, thank you for being on Beyond the Thesis. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another Beyond the Thesis conversation with me, David Mendez, and my guest, Jessica Schleider. If you'd like to support the show and help me produce more interviews like this, just go to papaphd.com forward slash PayPal and donate there. And if you want to help a little bit more, please go to papaphd.com forward slash audience and fill in the survey that is there for you and leave a comment so I can give you a shout out in a future episode. Thank you for being a fan, happy listening, and happy sharing. 